So slavery, the classic form of slavery that, that we all know of one person legally owning another person, that's been abolished and it's been outlawed uh, internationally, most, most notably to the uh, slavery convention. Well, the world's been living uh, under the impression that slavery does not exist anymore. But slavery is still lingering in the world, but it's using uh, different mechanisms to really enslave a person and putting that person under the control of another human being. So that might, for example, be through owing someone money, but in a way that that debt is, is, is structured in a way that it can never be repaid. And if the person who's owing the money wants to leave, they have to find someone else who's paying their debt to essentially their previous owner. So this is a mechanism that is called bad debt bondage. It's one of the forms of modern slavery, where although there is no legal title that one person owns the other person, there is a mechanism that gives one person debt control over another human being. BSI presents the Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on modern slavery. So I'm here today to collect an award uh, from my colleagues at the Rights Lab, um, Professor Alex Troutrams and Dr. Akila Jardine, who've worked very closely with British Standards on developing a new standard on modern slavery. So we're delighted to have worked with BSI and really delighted that we've won a prize. And how important do you think this particular standard is to BS257? How important a standard is this? I think it's really important because from my perspective as a former anti-slavery commissioner, anything we do to raise awareness of slavery and trafficking, both in this country and globally, is, is right. But also, not just to raise awareness, but what is the business response? Because very often, uh, businesses, if they look deep into their supply chains, they will find forced labour. And we want to encourage businesses to, to look for forced labour, to find it, and then to uh, address the issues and, and make sure that uh, they prevent it from happening again. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and welcome to The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we are looking at the issue of modern slavery. Now, playing us in at the top of the episode were two voices. The first was of Professor Alex Troutrims from the University of Nottingham, describing debt bondage, one form of modern slavery. Alex is co-chair of the BSI committee that has developed the standard BS 25700, the world's first national standard to help organisations take practical steps to eradicate modern slavery. And following Alex was Dame Sarah Thornton, speaking to me at the recent BSI Standards Conference and Awards. Dame Sarah is the former independent anti-slavery commissioner in the UK. She was there accepting an award on behalf of Alex and his Standards Committee co-chair Dr Akila Jardine for their exceptional leadership in developing the standard BS 25700. We also heard Dame Sarah telling me about how important she believes the standard is. Now we'll hear more from Sarah and from Alex in part three of this episode, including from Alex a quick guide to BS 25700. In part two of the episode, we'll hear from BSI's Ryan Lynch, Practice Director for Sustainability, and also from Helen Carter, Lead Consultant at Action Sustainability, and also a standards maker working on BS 25700. 
Ryan and Helen talk about how organisations should engage their suppliers and contractors and subcontractors to help eradicate modern slavery, the positive role of technology to address this issue, and also about the relationship between government policies, legislation and standards. And in part one, we'll hear from another BSI colleague, Fred Walter, Principal Consultant in Sustainable Supply Chains. Fred talks about some of the inherent complexity of global supply chains and the associated challenges of making sure that those supply chains are ethical and transparent. And also about the role of consumers in influencing brands and organisations around this issue of modern slavery. Modern slavery describes a range of exploitative practices, including forced compulsory and child labour, debt bondage, and human trafficking. It focuses on the shared features across these legal concepts and refers to situations of exploitation that a person cannot refuse or leave, often due to threats, violence, coercion, deception, or abuse of power and vulnerability. And it is a serious issue. This criminal practice affected 49.6 million people worldwide in 2021, according to estimates from Walk Free, the International Labour Organization, and the International Organization for Migration, with 27.6 million people in forced labor. Criminals profiting from this make approximately 150 billion US dollars every year from the proceeds of these crimes, and more than 70% of all modern slavery victims are female. And it can affect many sectors and industries. The food processing industry has seen modern slavery in their factories and plants, where workers are forced to work long hours in poor conditions, to pay back debts, or for little or no pay. Farming and agriculture is also heavily impacted by modern slavery, as workers are used to pick crops, tend to farmland and process raw materials, again in poor conditions. Often, illegal fishing boats will spend months at a time at sea. Modern slavery can be found in construction too, The common use of subcontractors can make understanding the true source of labour and treatment difficult for owners of projects. In healthcare too, contract workers are hired to meet increased patient care demand. These workers are often hired through third-party recruitment and talent acquisition agencies, which limit visibility over working conditions and employment practices. And it's not only a serious issue, but it's a growing one too. In the UK alone, the number of potential victims of modern slavery referred to the National Referral Mechanism has risen from 2,340 in 2014 to more than 12,700 in 2021, with the true number of victims likely to be far higher as the numbers continue to climb. Close to 8,000 people referred from January to June this year alone. So it's for reasons such as these that as part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda, there is a global call for action to bring about the eradication of modern slavery practices. Now, although this is a Matthew Without Cindy episode of The Standard Show, here is Cindy with a quick reminder. This is Cindy Paragill with a quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback for this subject or for any of the wide range of others that we have covered. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So, in this part one of the episode, we'll hear from Fred Walter. Speaking to me from the United States, where he's based, 
Fred is Principal Consultant in Sustainable Supply Chains at BSI. He has nearly 20 years' experience in social compliance, social auditing, and corporate social responsibility. I spoke to Fred about the issue of ethical and transparent supply chains and the role of consumers, particularly Gen Z, in exerting influence over brands and organisations. We began with Fred describing the complexity of supply chains, one in the fashion industry, through the case of a garment, a denim skirt in fact, and then a very different one in the food sector, in this case, shrimps. So if we want to look at um, the fashion supply chain, it's probably helpful to start with maybe a a finite type of a garment. Um, So I can give you an example of maybe like a a denim uh, skirt with some buttons and rivets on it, um, potentially that it's like distressed denim. So it's got a little bit of uh, maybe some uh, man-made holes in the garment um, to to make it look a little bit worn. Um, So if we just take that as an example, um, there are the uh, raw material suppliers. um, And I say suppliers because if you think about raw materials for a denim skirt, um, you're really looking at uh, the denim itself. And then you're also looking at the thread that's used to sew the panels of denim together. Um, and then the, uh, the other items. So like the rivets and the buttons, um, those are made in, in other factories that specialize in, uh, you know, pressing of metal or, um, uh, metal, uh, surface treatment. So you've got those suppliers, um, the zipper supplier, uh, potentially, um, and then you've got the actual primary factory, uh, and that primary factory could have a variety of different situations going on. Um, you could have uh, one primary factory that has uh, uh, embroidery that's happening on site, but the embroidery might be carried out by an on-site contractor, which is another company that basically sends workers over to work at the factory, but they're not directly employed by the factory. There's another uh, potential uh, situation, which is um, subcontracting, uh, and there's a couple different flavors of subcontracting we could call it. Uh, one is what we would call overflow subcontracting, which is essentially the factory is at capacity. And so they have to take the entire item and say, you know, we were going to make a thousand skirts. We don't have the capacity to do that. Here's 200 skirts of material and embellishments go and make 200 skirts for us. And then the subcontracting factory. So maybe a factory down the street, does 200 skirts and then the original primary factory does 800 skirts and that makes the thousand uh, that that make up the order. So that's overflow subcontracting. There's also process specific subcontracting, which is basically where um, the the actual processes that are that are needed for the production of the final good um, are done at another site. So it could be that the embroidery, like I mentioned before, with on-site contractors, it could be that they're off-site contractors that are doing the embroidery. So basically, what you see in the factory is um, some uh, semi-finished product, intermediate goods, we could call it, uh, packed into some plastic bags that are being carried out of the, the front gate of the factory. And they're going down the street to a factory that is going to do one process on those garments and then send them back. Um, and then they will be completed in-house. So that's uh, off-site contracting. And there's one other fun thing, which, um, and fun, obviously, you can tell I'm a little bit... Uh, jaded from having audited uh, in, in factories for for uh, 19 years. But um, we, all, we also see uh, prison labor, um, which is actually done through subcontracting schemes. 
it's typically done um, illegally, uh, where uh, the warden is actually the one who is upsetting the order um, and basically gives it to the prisoners to work on. You know, the prisoners are not paid at all because this isn't an uh, established system. Um, and then uh, whatever work needs to happen, so it could be simple stitching, um, anything that's a low level, low skill sort of a job um, could be outsourced to a prison as well. Um, and then it goes back to the factory and an unwitting consumer here in the States, probably not knowing too much about the situation would, wouldn't really know the difference to be really honest. Um, so that, that's sort of a little bit about, um, garments. If you wanted to look at that, that situation, um, I did want to mention one other, uh, one other product that's actually really different, um, which is shrimp. And, uh, you may think about, you know, so what do you mean shrimp? It's, you know, it comes from the ocean, right? So uh, you, you catch shrimp, um, I guess that's how that works. Um, what would be different about uh, a situation like a factory on land versus uh, vessels on water? And, and actually what's interesting is that shrimp are grown in ponds. They're not really um, just fished out of the ocean. They're grown in ponds. Um, they eat something called fish meal, which is made from trash fish which is fish that is caught that people don't want to eat. Um, and so boats go out, they catch this trash fish. It's made into feed. Uh, the, the feed mill makes the feed for the shrimp. And then on these hatching ponds, um, there's actually somebody that feeds that, that feed to the shrimp. So if you wanted to look at the human cost of all of that, um, you have to know where are the people from and who are they? That are actually uh, contributing to the, the supply, and so what what that includes is um, people that are in the vessels that are actually out there uh, fishing for the fish that are caught to make the fish meal. There are people that are in the fish meal plants, which are factories, and then there are people that are on the farms, uh, which have the hatching ponds. Um, most of those people uh, typically are actually non-nationals of the country in which they work. So if we think of shrimp, a lot of people think of Thailand. Um, and uh, in Thailand, a lot of the, the workers that work on shrimp production in those various steps are actually from Myanmar uh, or Cambodia. So they speak Burmese or they speak Khmer, they don't speak Thai. Um, and so they're, they're vulnerable to exploitation. So when you juxtapose the, the situation with Chinese workers in a Chinese factory making garments, with uh, potentially Burmese workers or Cambodian workers um, on vessels or in factories or uh, on farms uh, in Thailand um, with the workers speaking a different language, coming from a different country, um, not knowing the local legal infrastructure or, or how to raise grievances, you can see that the situation is actually quite different. Um, and so just looking at the product, you can see that you know, the, the actual uh, manufacturing supply chain is not always going to be the same as the pool of labor, the geographical location from which the workers are actually coming. Um, and that makes a huge difference if you're a client, uh, like a retailer or a brand who's trying to do the right thing um, by uh, sharing their requirements with uh, the the site the employment site with which they're working so either like the garment factory example or a vessel for example um, how you go about sharing that information and making sure that it's clear is actually quite difficult because you're dealing with different languages different geographies different legal infrastructures 
it's actually quite complex. Um, and so people don't think about this when they, they bite into a piece of shrimp, right? But um, it's actually uh, quite a complex situation when it comes to social compliance. And that's why I wanted to kind of juxtapose that from a, a garment type of an example. Fred had spoken about consumers not necessarily being fully aware of the conditions being faced by workers producing the products they buy. So I went on to ask him if the problem is that consumers want transparent and ethical supply chains, but aren't necessarily following through with their purchasing decisions. So effectively, are consumers wish buying and just hoping that the goods they buy are ethically sourced? People do care about social compliance, I think, uh, when it comes to where their goods are made and how they've been made and, and the, the, the uh, conditions in, in which the workers are actually working. Um, I think that people, if they imagine themselves in that situation or they think about um, the, the original origin of the item that they're buying, they would be a little bit concerned. And I think it would probably uh, be something that they would, you know, potentially be willing to pay a little bit more for, potentially be willing to at least do a little bit more research. Um, I think younger consumers probably more likely than 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 older ones. But um, what it comes down to, and this is why I was saying, I don't know if I want to say this as a, a social compliance practitioner, but to be really honest, um, right now with financial pressures, with inflation over 8%, I guess is what the IMF put out as a, a percentage of inflation that's going to happen this year, um, people don't have as much disposable income anymore. And so if they wanted to choose what might be a more ethical solution for a product or a service that they want to buy for themselves, um, they they probably could have done that in the past. And maybe they're not able to now um, simply because of budgetary concerns. Um, so that's a problem. Um, I think the other thing is most of the time, if you compare two items, the first thing you look at are you looking at where the item was made and who made it? Because you can't see that, but you can see the quality of the item or the way it looks. Um, and so people are obviously going to still put that as, as the front and center. Um, and then I think probably just to hope that everything is okay where it was made um, and not think about it. I think that's what a lot of people do. Um, but if you look at, uh, if you look at, different types of uh, consumers and the brands that they might buy. Um, if you think of a consumer that might buy from Patagonia or Lululemon or Nike, um, they're probably somebody who is willing to pay a little bit more um, because they want that brand. They want the reliability of the, uh, in terms of quality. Um, and more and more, uh, they want to know that um, the items are ethically sourced. And I think those, those companies that I just mentioned have done a really, really good job about trying to explain what they're doing um, to ensure uh, social compliance in their supply chains um, and to really get it out there so that customers know, you know, I'm paying a premium, but I'm getting a little bit of assurance with that uh, when it comes to the social compliance question. If you're looking at like Dollar General, um, people are looking at volume, uh, what's cheap, what is there right now, uh, and they're not looking so much at where items come from. And so if you look at the way um, the these companies are actually positioned in the marketplace when it comes to the statements they make publicly about their social compliance programs and their supply chains. Um, obviously, what you're going to see from Patagonia or Lululemon is going to be very different than what you might see from a Dollar General, just because they're they're different price points, they're different types of products. Um, so I think in, in a nutshell, really, uh, I, I don't think the financial crisis is really helping us so much when it comes to uh, getting people to to want to pay a premium a little bit. 
uh, more often for for something that is real sourced with a, a, in a socially compliant fashion. Um, but um, there there are obviously brands that 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 survive and thrive uh, having this kind of an image of of being a responsible uh, procurement kind of company. Does the su- sustainability matter more to the Gen Z market, um, and how do they feel about this whole topic? Um, I think comparing them with uh, the baby boomer boomer generation, um, it's really that they are growing up in a completely different environment. So they have always had the internet. They've always been able to uh, uh, search something on their smartphone or on a computer uh, to find out a lot more information about a product or where it comes from. Um, And they are accustomed to having information at their fingertips um, being shared with them in a way that is innovative and sort of gimmicky. So um, when I think of an example, and I, I think this is not gimmicky, this is actually a great example. Um, there is a, a, co- a coffee company called West Rock Coffee Company, and uh, they they have a farmer direct verified program. So you can go to a store, uh, purchase beans um, from uh, farms that have been visited um, by uh, staff from that organization. Um, and you can look right on the label and see a QR code that you can scan with your phone, and then it'll tell you from which farms those beans were sourced. So you can get an idea of, like, these beans that I'm buying for the coffee that I'm going to brew today came from this place, from this farmer in this country, um, and they were paid a proper rate um, of compensation for, for, for the beans that they sold. Um, I think that Gen Z... Uh, that that group will really uh, really like this kind of a function um, for a product that they might want to buy. They they want to look up that information because they they feel like it's important and they know how to look it up. Um, if you just compare that to a baby boomer that maybe walks in, they see a QR code though they don't even know what a QR code is or how to scan it. Um, so I think it is a lot more important. I think that the only one thing uh, to remember about Gen Zers is that they have a little bit less in the way of income that they are able to spend simply because they're just younger in their lives um, and and their careers. So they don't have such a high uh, level of salary. And what that equates to is maybe they want premium things and they want uh, to know more about uh, supply chain. They want to know uh, that things are transparent. They want to be able to uh, have all the bells and whistles that are available, but they may not have the money to pay for it. and so that's just kind of a thing to remember. Um, I think that a lot of clients have uh, potentially even engineered their social compliance programs to to focus on this a little bit more in that they don't want to put so much information out there um, that uh, people aren't quite um, either willing to pay for it or they're not able to digest it. Uh, they maybe hold back a little bit um, to try to find the sweet spot in the middle. Um, but I think the Gen Zers are, you know, if you compare them to the to the other other groups that we typically uh, put people into uh, in terms of ages, I think that they are really uh, the first digital natives um, that are out there that, that are looking for those bells and whistles about traceability and understanding exactly where something comes from just by looking at the label. Hi, this is Cindy Parakil again with a message to say that if you want to make a difference and shape and change the world to make it a better and fairer place, then why not become a standards maker with BSI? 
Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy, and society to do things better. We have hundreds of committees working on thousands of standards, including those on aspects of the governance and management of organizations, including the challenges of creating ethical and transparent supply chains. We welcome applicants from all fields, backgrounds, and career stages. Our goal is simple, to have a balance of views around the standards-making table. So start your standards-making journey now by visiting bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. So in this second part of the episode, we explore in a bit more detail some of the issues around supply chain complexity, forced labor, and other forms of modern slavery raised by Fred. I'll do this with Ryan Lynch. Now, Ryan is Practice Director for Sustainability at BSI, and like Fred, also based in the United States. He leads a team advancing decarbonisation, climate action, and sustainable supply chains. I also do this with Helen Carter. Helen is Lead Consultant at Action Sustainability, and also a member of the BSI Standards Committee, which has developed BS25700. I spoke to Ryan and Helen about the challenges of creating supply chain transparency, how organisations should engage their suppliers, contractors and subcontractors to eradicate modern slavery, and the positive role of technology and digitalisation to address this issue, and also about the role of government policies, legislation and standards. But I started by asking Helen, how do organisations know if their supply chains are free from human rights violations? It's kind of interesting, this question, because it's going to be an unpopular one and slightly controversial in terms of the fact that you can't. Um, no organisation really will ever be able to stand up and say, hands on heart, they have got zero victims of modern slavery and exploitation and lots of interconnected human rights um, issues in their supply chain due to the complexity um, and due to the size of organisations. Um, we've seen through recent times, you know, the challenges of COVID, Russian sanctions, um, you know, the real challenges we're seeing around supply chains right now It takes a really long time to understand what's happening within those organizations and drive this. So there's an element here of organizations needing to sort of understand they need to change the story a little bit. And whilst they might have statements to look at saying they want to eradicate or contribute towards eradicating things like modern slavery and and associated human rights violations, actually what we're looking for is organisations to actually, and I've heard this said before, find and fix look and address the challenges that they find. Um, We know that some businesses will move a supply chain very quickly. They'll move to different countries. They'll move to different suppliers. Um, Some organizations I deal with have tens of thousands of suppliers. Um, And you might find that there's one particular supplier you just didn't know you had that had those issues. So I think it's really interesting here that we get businesses to start thinking about moving away from this need to say that they have no victims of slavery to actually declaring that they have a process for looking for it and addressing it. Um, that to me is probably much more important. And individual listeners can can go and have a look at, at what they buy. Um, there's a really great website um, called slaveryfootprint.org. Um, and if you go on to that, you can put your own personal consumption in. And any listener that desires to go and have a do, don't do that, I, I would challenge them to come back if they've got zero. 
Um, and the reality is it's through so many different supply chains, so many different products, no one really can stand up and say that they've eradicated it or it's free from violations. What we're looking for businesses to do is almost take a different approach, which is take responsibility for their supply chains and understand their impact and address those impacts as they identify them. So, yeah, it feels like it's a starting with a negative in terms of you can't, but more about adjusting people's expectations, I think, which is really important. Which sort of industries here are, are most at risk of this issue of modern slavery? And why do you think, why do you think they are? Well, it's, in some cases, it's going to depend on the context. So if you look at different factors like the operating environment, so where are they operating? Um, uh, you know, what's the, the local uh, legal regime? What's the local uh, enforcement regime? Uh, where is there a uh, historical incidence of, uh, you know, of these types of uh, risks surfacing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's best for companies to look at this from a country level. Where do I operate and where do these risks surface? So, you know, part of the, one of the, the pieces of uh, the tools that we bring to our work is a, is a risk intelligence platform called Screen, where we've got country risk analyses that sort of call out these, uh, these types of risks. Another impact area is commodity. So, you know, there are particular commodities when you kind of intersect that with where they're operating, then, uh, you know, you understand that there's a higher likelihood of certain commodities that are subject, uh, uh, you know, to these types of risks. I think um, uh, commodities where there's sort of a less formal workforce or that are further upstream in the supply chain, if you think about mining and agriculture, um, you know, there's there's typically, uh, you know, higher risks there. And, you know, that's sort of that third factor is sort of a tier of the supply chain. So in many cases, um, if I'm working with a formalized work site, that's my direct supplier, and it's a fairly mature organization, um, I'm more likely to be able to influence them and help them upskill and have a greater line of sight into their own operations. But once you kind of get past that, that's where it gets a bit more opaque. Um, and, uh, and then really the, the onus is on understanding your supplier's own management systems. So how do you choose your own suppliers and how do you maintain your own level of visibility and control in that? And there's some great resources, you know, I mentioned screen, but the U S department of labor also has a list of goods made with forced labor and child labor. Uh, the U S state department has the, the tip report with, which is the trafficking in persons report. So, you know, lots of great, uh, resources out there. Uh, that's you know kind of the easy part. The hard part is actually sort of applying that to your business and making decisions based on information that's available. How about you, Helen? Do you think there are any particular industries that are that are, that are most at risk of modern slavery? There is a, sort of a starter cheat sheet that tends to come out quite a lot. So you know, re- echoing um, Ryan's comments, the, the commodity sector is a, is a big one, particularly in areas where there's extractives. Um, I do a lot of work in construction, which is notorious for for these challenges, and we see it not just in direct and indirect labour um, on construction sites. So obviously, we're we're looking very closely at things like Qatar that, that's just about to launch for the for the World Cup. But embedded in a lot of the products, so like bricks, um, categorized as blood bricks, um, a lot of these these areas. But I think what's quite interesting in this space is is this sort of dynamic of systems versus sort of getting closer to the people in your supply chain. So when you're looking at trying to understand the risks, looking at sectors, one of the things that a lot I see a lot with organisations is they get very procedural, very systematic, um, and forget 
that the people are at the heart of what you're trying to address. So vulnerability is really, really important in this stage. So understanding whether something is low paid, um, to sort of add on to, to Ryan's comments, low paid or low skilled work, the intersectional um, aspiration or aspects of, you know, discrimination and poor employment standards, um, abuse that might be going on in some supply chains, which we see in things like garment sectors, um, things like food sectors. Um, so it's really important that when an organization thinks about those risks they don't just consider the risk to their business because if we think of commodities for example the reputational risk in particular is is virtually zero um nobody knows whether a brick is is from south asia or whether a brick is from a valley in wales um so the reputational risk is really really small but the the risk to people working in the supply chain could be significant due to the, the vulnerability issues so whatever systems are being put in place and and the systems that Ryan was talking around, you know, that sort of visibility should also be considering, you know, the geographical, the, the, the legislation, albeit though, actually um, people tend to think, Oh, Europe's fine or UK's fine. You know, we've got legislation. It's, it's not a problem. Um, The U S is fine. There's legislation, not a problem, but we know that, that, that in all those sort of regions where we consider them to be developed, there are cases of, modern slavery, forced labor, labor exploitation, permeating through businesses, you'd assume assume that legislation does not allow that to happen. So I, I think not just focusing on the industries, thinking about the risk to people, thinking about vulnerabilities, and thinking um, about what those vulnerabilities look like is a really important part of considering risk in this space. So Helen, I just wonder what what sort of the biggest challenge here impacted modern slavery. You know, in creating that sort of supply chain transparency. What's what's the biggest challenge? Do you think? <laughs> what's the biggest challenge? I think for me, one of the biggest challenges um, is is the lack of understanding in organisations about what the investment criteria is. Um, I'm I've spent a lot of time in my career in procurement, um, talking to procurement professionals, and they're driven significantly by operational efficiency, cost savings. You know, as we've had COVID and Russia and lots of other challenges that are hitting supply chains, Brexit right now. Um, you try and actually get a supply chain person to think about what's happening with a human rights lens and a modern slavery lens and and it feels a big a big um sort of mountain for them to climb so i think trying to embed it in business as usual within a sort of supply chain management procurement process can be a big challenge and also what i found with some organizations that we've worked with and and some colleagues that I've done is that when you start to get into the supply chain and you start to get into layers of the supply chain where the business relationship is not so one-on-one or one-on-many it's 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 not so connected if you like um whose responsibility is it to address these issues um so when you find out what your what's going on in those supply chains there's a lack of competence a lack of knowledge a lack of ambition um and, and possibly investment and resource for that remedy and also actually starting to think about how how you prevent it. So when we think about the fact that this week is COP27, for example, you know, that the environment world is easier. I don't say it's easy, but it's easier. It's more scientific. It's the, the cost benefit makes sense. The investment profile makes sense. You get into human rights and you get into modern slavery and it's just deemed to be fluffy, challenging, transparency, 
cost, um, you know, very costly, very resource heavy, without necessarily being able to put the business lens on what's the return on investment. Um, and where brands have a reputational um, challenge, so we see it in the garment industry, they do spend time because it has a massive impact on the brand and a massive impact on the reputation. Where we start to see, however, some of the biggest human rights violations and modern slavery violations are in areas like extractives, like in mining, like in oil and gas, like in construction where the brand's reputation doesn't exist. Actually, the business case for addressing these issues, which is the way businesses speak, is a much more difficult thing to actually explain. Um, so I think it's the lack of knowledge, lack of resources, um, and, and maybe the lack of urgency in some, some sectors over others, I think. Ryan, knowledge, or lack of knowledge, resources, urgency, what, what's your perspective? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of challenges. Um, and Helen kind of spoke to the the scale. So if I'm a buyer at the end of the supply chain uh, and I have a thousand suppliers, that's a lot. It's hard to be everywhere all the time. So there's the scale, there's the lack of direct control. So if I've got, you know, 10 of my own sites, I can make investments. I can, you know, hire the HR professionals directly. I can make changes to policies and procedures. You know, it's a, it's a bit easier than... Uh, indirectly influencing, you know, those thousand suppliers. I think that cascades into the issue of skills development. You know, some of the skills here, um, you know, they're they're all teachable, but it's you know challenging to teach. And there's a lot of really critical thinking and empathy that's baked into here, which are a little bit sort of squishier to try to convey. So the 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 depth of dialogue that's required. And the really the substantive nature of how to engage suppliers that in itself is hard to scale as well. Um, so I think there's some challenges there. I think just the nature of the risks as well sometimes are a little bit, uh, you know, less on the surface or harder to measure. People are really really complicated. Uh, they're more complicated than machines or materials, which are a lot more predictable. So people have good days and bad days. Um, so there's that just in managing people in general or the dynamic between an employee and their manager or an employer. Um, but, uh, but then there's also, you know, the nature of forced labor, for example, you know, there's not, people aren't in a workplace walking around with a sign saying I am being forced to work. You know, the, the ways that people are exploited are hidden, um, you know, in some cases sort of administrative controls that you don't see on the surface, um, you know, contracts, retention of passports, even just the subtle, dynamic between an employer and an employee, there's a huge power indifference there that people on the outside probably wouldn't recognize. Uh, the employer themselves might not be conscious of it, but the employee is very, very aware of it. So those those things could be exploited and it's not something like, uh, like greenhouse gases, for example, that could be really measured uh, in the same way. So th there's challenges with that as well. Can I can I just add to that? I think one of the other challenges that we see is actually cultural in terms of what's acceptable and what's not in different countries. I mean, we when we were putting the BS 25700 standard together, and we've just been recently talking about whether it should be an ISO one, as simple as should it be called modern slavery, a conversation erupted because 
modern slavery is a very um, sort of UK centric, maybe sort of European centric. Um, a lot of organizations are starting to think about moving. Well, is it just forced labor or modern slavery? Is it now human rights? Um, and, you know, you can get into some of the countries where you've got huge atrocities happening in, in supply chains that are either being covered up or you know, organizations are being complicit. And certain things are very culturally normed. Um, so, you know, employment standards, this is the way it's always been. Some countries, they have rules around passports that they apply and it's part of the legislation. So the dynamic here as well is how we make real effective change whilst understanding the cultural dynamics that might be embedded in our supply chain. And, and that's a, a real difficult, you know, asking individuals to have empathy on this is not too difficult. Most of the people when I do my training all come away horrified about what's happening. But the reality is that as you start to expand that and get into maybe countries or regions where they don't recognize the terminology modern slavery or they don't recognize the terminology um, relating to, to forced labor, um, that becomes incredibly difficult. Um, incredibly difficult to influence. Well, I think one of the challenges that that Helen's alluding to here, in, in addition to the scale um, and the uh, you know sort of the, the the lack of direct control, is around the complexity. So, if we're dealing with you know dozens or hundreds of components or materials in a product, and the dozens or hundreds or thousands of suppliers that are involved in producing those and assembling those. Um, that gets quite complex. So for, you know, in, now we're outside of the four walls of our direct business and we're in multiple countries around the world. And then when you get into issues related to uh, uh, foreign migrant workers who might be employed at the site. So now there's one more layer of, of obfuscation that makes it harder for someone to see behind. So if I'm working with a direct supplier and they're working with a recruiter who's recruited workers from another country who may have also been recruited by someone in country. Now we've got that many more layers of points in the process where workers can be exposed to risk, can be exploited, can be tricked, and suddenly sucked into um, you know workplaces that they just can't get out of. Um, so again, that's that's not really on the surface. And you really have to dig and be skilled at digging and in many cases, bring in people with, who could speak multiple languages, who understand different uh, legal regimes to be able to, uh, to to really understand the truth behind that. I think to add, add to that, there's, 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 there's different drivers for why this happens. To a certain extent, you know, when we're seeing some supply chains, um, it's it's not necessarily criminality. It's, it's the forced labor. It's bringing them in, bringing in cheap labor. If we if we bring in some of the areas and particularly why the act was put in place in the UK, you have aspects of criminality involved in all of this. It's, it's linked to trafficking. It's linked to um, exploited, exploitative practices. And one of the things that we've been learning a lot over the last few years of, as we've been working with businesses is how smart some of these criminals actually are. So very simple things like, you know, you used to be able to say, well, look, just check bank accounts. When, when the Modern Slavery Act first came out, the good check was to check the bank accounts. If you've got somebody working on your site, happens to have the same bank account as four other people that are working there, then it's an indicator. It's something that you can look for. Very quickly, criminal enterprises realized this is something they're checking. So now each individual person was more likely to have 10 bank accounts opened, opened up in their own name. They understand that as we educate businesses to let them know that these things are happening, they understand how to deal with that systematic piece. So I, I echo Ryan's point that that, 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 that 
the ability to deal with these issues should both be what I call hard hard measures, which are sort of the systems, the, the checks and the balances. But you have to balance that with the soft measures, which is sort of talking to the people, getting that worker voice starting to address so that you understand the drivers for why this exploitation is happening um, so that you can really start to bring something useful and effective in, in trying to manage this issue. Up to this point, Ryan and Helen had described some of the industries at most risk to the issue of modern slavery and set out some of the challenges facing organisations of creating supply chain transparency and sustainability. So having considered those, we then moved on to look at solutions. So you both set out then some of the sort of the challenges um, impacting the impacting organisations about how they deal with this issue of sort of modern day slavery and creating those supply chain transparencies. But I suppose sort of flipping sort of more more positive perspective, you know, how can we make significant advancement in the eradication of modern slavery? Maybe come to you first, Ryan. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, there's there's some practical points I'll, I'll speak to in a few moments about, uh, you know, management systems that companies should put into place, um, you know, within their business, but sort of at a, at a higher level societal level um, I kind of would like some of the some of the uh, the dialogue to be directed towards inequality as well you know the uh, countries where there is a higher degree of inequality um, uh, you know there's just there are associated with a whole host of um, uh, you know negative human impacts um, ranging from gun deaths and you know obesity deaths and um, you know, uh, teenage pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. So I, 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 and this might be too abstract for this discussion, but I don't think there's enough talk about inequality and how it sort of drives behavior, whether it's individually or organizationally or sort of across relationships in a supply chain. Um, and I think, again, this is probably too abstract for, you know, any concrete advice to start tackling tomorrow, but there really needs to be new ways of accounting for value. You know, we have a very sort of baked into a very short-term accounting system, and you know, this is this is who uh, you know needs to extract value and how we extract value, and um, you know, uh, you know how uh, you know returns are, are calculated and how taxes are levied, etc. All of that drives very near-term, siloed, uh, short-sighted, and and short-minded approaches to things. And things like the impact on, you know, the development of human beings to reach their full potential, you know, above and beyond even just, just, you know, not exploiting them, those kind of get lost. So, you know, at a high level, again, probably too abstract to be concrete advice for a company today. There are large scale ways that we do things that uh, are kind of broken at their DNA that kind of need to be re-engineered. Now, we'll come back to sort of the organisational uh, level in, in a second, Ryan, but how about you, Helen, sort of high-level advancements we can make here to, to you know, address this issue of slavery in terms of eradication? I, I don't think um, they're as abstract as you think in, in terms of the fact that if you think about the prevention element of how we get into this space and also what modern slavery is a result of, which is vulnerability. Organizations can start to think about how you tie those people aspects together. So, you know, what what leads to an individual being vulnerable? And it, it could be education, it could be 
discrimination. Um, you know, if you look at the garment industry, for example, a huge significant number of, of employees um, are female. Um, and it's in a sector where discrimination is rife. Um, so tying into well-being, discrimination, employment models and employment conditions um, sits a bit better with businesses to a certain extent because they can they can tie in with what it means to employ people um, and employ those and, and bring in the right conditions. Um, moving away from saying, you know, addressing modern slavery and exploitation and, you know, other human rights issues as a compliance issue is a good place to start and understand this idea that what you fundamentally want is a system that does no harm. Um, we're used to that with a health and safety environment. Why shouldn't we be doing that with an employment and a and a people's strategy perspective? So, I, I totally agree with Ryan. It, 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 businesses can't address all the societal inequalities. The role of the state has a huge part to play within this. But where the businesses have influence, and you know, we can talk about leverage a little bit later on. But where they have influence, starting to think about how they can eliminate those vulnerabilities is a really good way to start to think about how you can really try and tackle some of the challenges around modern slavery. So Helen, you've obviously brought, you brought us back there to sort of organisation. Just wonder from the organisational level, you know, what should organisations be doing to, to engage their suppliers and their contractors and subcontractors to, to look at, to abolish this issue of modern slavery? I think for me, it's, it's about making sure that there is um, collaboration. There is working closely with supply chains where you really want to try and make difference. So procurement um, and, and, within organizations is traditionally seen very tactical, um, putting things into my tenders, putting things into my, um, you know, contract conditions. And then the risk averse organizations will immediately stop working with the supplier if there's some sort of reputational risk. I think what needs to happen is once you've identified who those organizations are, where that prioritization is and where you have leverage, and that's an interesting conversation, um, you need to work collectively with that supply chain. Um, and it's the only way you can then start to drive improvements. It's, it's making sure that you are, you know, unless there are the most egregious human rights violations happening, and, and there are examples of that at the moment um, in certain things like solar panels, for example, and cotton, Continuous improvement has to be the aim here with your supply chain. So engage them, train them, work with them, um, really try and help them understand how they can address some of these issues. I think my, my final point goes to the leverage bit before I hand over to Ryan, who's probably going to come up with about 20 million more of the things, um, is, is the idea of leverage. So I've been thinking a lot about this recently over the weekend. I'm just finishing off my human rights um, course myself um, that I'm undertaking and there's a lot of conversation around leverage if you have leverage with the supplier and in a procurement world leverage is I spend enough money with them um, so actually also starting to think about what leverage and or influence looks like with your supply chain is really important and if you don't have that direct versus direct relationship how do I create an influence with the supply chain to dig deeper to try and really start to improve some of these conditions and that could be collaborating with industry bodies it could be getting a whole load of suppliers together to work um, together in this space. Um, because one thing I have found is that things like modern slavery on areas where people want to compete. <laughs> they might on other things, but this is an area where they do genuinely want to try and address some of the issues. A lot of organisations I work with. I'll let you come back in, Ryan, but not 20 million um, <laughs> things. Okay. So okay. narrow it down well, Narrow it down it. for us. I'll keep it to 10 million. Um, <laughs> you know, everything Helen said was spot on. Um, you know, when I think about how any system may fail, 
or what a good management system looks like. You know, I'm, I'm typically thinking about, you know, and, and this might sound dry or abstract, but it's actually really quite simple and practical, you know, policies and procedures, communication, skills or enablers, monitoring or measuring, and then sort of how is it governed and how does it continue to improve? So in the context of modern slavery, you know, is there a policy by the organization? Is it endorsed and embraced and advocated by leadership? Um, you know, that's absolutely necessary. Is it baked into contractual agreements? Is it, you know, cascading down into clear work instructions for anybody who touches the process? Um, you know, is there a systematic, consistent assessment of impacts in decisions that the business makes? All that sort of I, I kind of bundle into that first category of defining what this is and what the process is and what the commitments are. From a communication perspective, it's really about how does info, in, information flow throughout an organization or through a network? So that could be laterally across functions. One function makes a decision, has a negative impact on another. They don't have visibility into one another's work. It can be down to suppliers. You know, here's my expectations of you. It can be up from workers. Do I understand your needs? Is there a systematic way of engaging those stakeholders and understanding what's important to them and how they're impacted? And does it flow up to leadership? So they're in a position to make informed decisions. From a skills and enablers perspective, do suppliers understand what's expected, but also understand how to put these systems in place at their own, you know, within their own business, you know, as an employer. And are those skills in place for recruiters that might be throughout the process? What skills are in place for mid-level managers and for individual workers, uh, HR professionals? Um, so, so, you know, are they enabled to successfully support the policy because they've been empowered and are accountable and, and have the right skills in place. From a monitoring or a measurement perspective, you know, do we do we have this systematic assessment of impacts at multiple points in the process? Do we understand work workplace demographics, whether it's gender, whether it's nationality, whether it's religion, whether it's migrant versus local, all of those impact how these risks can manifest themselves to the to the worker. And to Helen's earlier point, not just looking at risk to the business, but to the business, to the supplier, to the worker, to the local community, et cetera. Um, some companies from a measurements perspective will gather information from suppliers through questionnaires they issue. Um, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a scalable way to do this, but the downside is you're not actually speaking with workers. So that's really essential, you know, where you have the resources and the, the negative impacts manifest themselves. You really do need to be speaking with workers. And then from a governance perspective, you know, is this owned at the leadership level? Is this baked into a continuous improvement process? Is this baked into incentives for buyers, et cetera? It's all of these things. Any of those things I just mentioned breaks down, the entire system can break down. So that's, you know, we use that as sort of a diagnosis for what should be in place and how do I spot what's not in place that might be causing some of these risks to present themselves. Can I, can I just add to that? I think one of the things that a lot of businesses tend to focus on a lot is what do you need to do supply chain? What should you be doing for me? How do you need to do this? Um, and I think sometimes they forget the unintended consequences of some of the decisions that they make um, and pressures that they put on their supply chain. So understanding their role as the client and their behaviors and how that affects things that are happening in their supply chain is really, really important. And a great example of that was COVID and particularly in the garment industry when, you know, shops completely closed down um people weren't buying clothes and a lot of garment um sort of retailers just 
cancelled their orders, refused to take the stock, um, and therefore lent to countries where there was huge aspects of vulnerability, there was huge aspects of, um, you know, low pay, low skill. Um, and suddenly these people, th- their vulnerability index went up five or six or sevenfold. Um, I see it with mobilization in construction contracts where a client will ask a supplier to do something for them and then literally give them a week to pull it together um, and get it delivered in the time they need to. All that pressure that's put on a supply chain means that the, the behaviors that they're going through um, or the behaviors of the suppliers are about meeting the needs of the client no matter what at any cost. So I think businesses have need to have the systems, they need to work with their suppliers, but they also need to understand as an ultimate client the responsibility they have to make sure those conditions are right for the supply chain um, to, to ensure they're not making any, cutting any corners, making any decisions that could lead to these sorts of issues um, occurring. So you both talked about issues there around sort of culture and leadership and, and management and sort of putting some policies and processes in place. I just wonder, what's the positive role of technology here and digitalization to address this issue? You know, what, what technologies or systems could be utilized? Ryan, maybe how about come to you first? Sure. Well, like I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the, the challenges that's inherent in, in tackling this is just the issue of scale. Um, you know, if I've got hundreds or thousands of suppliers, it's just hard to uh, understand where risk is presenting itself to to workers throughout the supply chain, and hard to sort of drive those changes um, at that scale. So yeah, I think technology has a has a you know a, a potentially a you know a central role in a lot of this. Um, to some of the points that Helen and I have been speaking about earlier, this should not be a replacement for actual actually speaking to human beings and understanding how they're impacted because that's hard enough to get to the bottom. Uh, you know, to get to the issue, you know, even even with a really skilled interviewer. Um, but to be able to engage a lot of suppliers at scale, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we have a, a workflow and reporting tool that we use with some of our customers um, where they're pushing out sets of questions to their suppliers to understand uh, the controls that they have in place and the management systems they have in place and their level of awareness of the risks that they're dealing with, whether it's modern slavery or otherwise. So if we're able to gather information about the workforce demographics, that might be a signal to the client to say, yeah, I need to take a closer look at that because the, you know, the, 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 the potential for risk is greater here. I would not have known that if I can't reach out to, you know, a hundred or a thousand suppliers at once. And then, you know, do they really have an understanding of what a good management system looks like specific to managing these risks? Um, so, you know, we'll, you know, you see enterprise platforms like that, that either manage this data, manage the, the dialogue, manage the corrective action process. Um, they can be, a, you know, a, a useful um, tool to, to enable this. And then, you know, you get into sort of forward looking technologies like blockchain and traceability. I know BSI has done some work, uh, not specific to modern slavery around that, but, um, but uh, sort of uh, creating a traceable chain of custody to have a higher degree of confidence that at least we know where things are coming from. Now we're in a better position to investigate further where that's needed. Alan, do you want to come in on that? So I, I, I agree with everything Ryan said in terms of the fact that it, it's about efficiency. It's about um, reach, the ability to get um, deeper into some of your supply chains in, a, in, a, in an efficient way without putting a lot of people on the end of a, a phone call. I think there's a couple of other things though that are quite useful um, in terms of, 
again, when you have that worker's voice, although you do need to speak to them ideally and, and, and there's nothing better than that sort of face-to-face it can be a vehicle for things like whistleblowing it can be a vehicle for capturing people who want to report something but are scared um in a lot of instances um people who are victims of modern slavery are are frightened don't necessarily recognize themselves as this so it's a good vehicle for that sort of ability to report and ability to communicate um relatively independently and to a certain extent sort of anonymously um but at the same time safely um i think the other thing and i've seen this in the uk there's a a, an app um that's um used i think in uh, i know it's used in agriculture um and i think it's also being used in some of the garment industry called the just good work app and it's designed to cross borders and educate people on what their rights are so again one of the prevention things that can be looked at is educating individuals so that they understand you know our recruitment fees the right thing to pay should they be um, entitled to um, what are their employment conditions in the country that they're going into when they are looking at migrating for work Um, and this sort of technology is great at being able to talk to people in their own language um, in a way that allows them to understand what their rights are and again eliminate some of that vulnerability Um, so I think it's a really really useful um, activity so there's there's lots of ways that technology can actually help I think I echo Ryan's point though one of the key things here is it's about data collection and not taking on the responsibility of due diligence so I see this a lot with organizations who say oh I've got a traceability system tells me where everything's from uh, because it's not from you know a particular region that everyone's worried about therefore I'm okay um, it's it's an efficient mechanism to gather the information, but there still needs that interpretation, that education around what should I be asking, who should I be speaking to, how should I get some of this information. Um, and technology definitely helps in this space to make it easier, but doesn't take away any responsibility for having that conversation, doing those checks. It just makes it easier, um, I think. You both talked about, well, we're talking here about some of the organisational responsibility uh, that, that that's required here and the policies and procedures and mechanisms to be put in place, either at a, a person level or, or a technological level. But obviously, we're talking about a really important issue here, you know, modern slavery, and there are government policies yeah. and legislation here as well. But Helen, I just wonder to come to you, you know, the relationship here between government policies and legislation and also the role of standards. What are, what are we talking about here? So when I started doing work on the Modern Slavery Act before it, before it came out, um, looking at the legislation, I was trying to get to grips with what the UK was trying to do. And obviously there's, there's been um, legislation similar to this with the, the California Transparency Act. And we're starting to see a huge wave of this sort of legislation happening globally now. Um, the EU has its um, current thinking around the, 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 the human rights and environmental due diligence. And one thing I'm seeing improve with each iteration of legislation that's coming through is is more need to see visibility of what's happening in the supply chain but what I'm not seeing do um, happen and I think this is where maybe standards are helping a little bit is really getting to the nitty-gritty of full responsibility whose responsibility is it most of it seems to be reporting um, and I've I've seen all the different types of legislation through Europe um, which (coughs) 
really don't hold businesses too much accountable. Um, it is you produce a report and then that's fine. So legislation has been really successful in raising awareness. But if you get to the nitty gritty of what all the legislation is is talking about, we've yet to see businesses being successfully prosecuted under any of the legislation that's out there. Um, a lot of the litigation that seems to be out in place, I, I sort of term strategic litigation, it's more about trying to use the, the bill to raise awareness of, of bad practices. And we've actually just seen that with the UK government and, and cotton. Um, but the teeth are seriously lacking. So legislation, I think, has a good part to play in terms of raising awareness. Businesses are feeling the pressure, trying to get to grips with how it all works, um, because every single piece of legislation is slightly different. And if you're global, that can give you a bit of a headache. So I think the role of standards is, and we, we struggled with this ourselves when we were doing the 25700 standard, was how do we use legislation as the base but actually really get to grips with what the legislation is trying to do and use standards to to, to push businesses towards that. Um, not comply, but to do the best practice. Talk about all the stuff that me and Ryan have been talking about all the way through this podcast around the systems that they need to have in place, the sort of um, checks and balances, the sort of um, cultural um, change that needs to happen. I think standards, if you went towards a standard approach, what that does is means you're you're compliant with the legislation, albeit the legislation doesn't have a huge amount of focus in the space at the moment. Um, but it does mean that you can then start to keep a pace of it, keep ahead of it, as, as obviously the legislation gets better and more sophisticated over time, which is what it's showing it's doing at the moment. And how about from your perspective, Ryan? Well, I think standards are powerful because they're an agreed upon framework that's developed through consensus. So, you know, when there's a great deal of variability in a system that increases costs, that reduces speed. So, you know, from a business perspective, a standardized way to uh, go about solving a problem is usually a good thing. Um, you know, I hear complaints either from the, uh, we'll say it's sort of the, the, the buyer side or from the supplier side about the kind of the redundancy with some of these, you know, these kind of... Uh, these sort of broad initiatives across a sector. So from the from the buyer side, they're saying, "Oh, I, you know, I did an audit of my supplier, for example, and um, you know, they said that they're audited by other customers. I wish I could have visibility into that." So you've seen more sort of information sharing platforms over the past, you know, ten and fifteen years you know, arise. And from the supplier side, it's like, you know, this is my eighth audit, you know, in the past, you know, six months by eight different clients, and they're essentially asking the same thing. Can we eliminate some of the redundancy and, you know, let me ideally focus my resources on driving improvements, engaging the workforce, et cetera. Um, from a regulations perspective, the, you know, regulations create a consistent set of rules. So the one thing businesses hate more than regulation is unpredictability. So if there's a, you know, consistent set of rules, it's a predictable operating environment whether a business likes it or doesn't like it, they're playing against a consistent set of rules with their peers and you know they know the boundaries within that. And I wish I had a statistic to back up what I'm about to say, but uh, I'm, I'm willing to bet that predictable marketplaces are generally going to be more stable and are generally going to be more resilient. So as a final thought then, Ryan, Ryan really, I'm thinking, you know, what does the future look like here? What's the future of ethical supply chains? What do they look like? 
well, I, I don't know if this is what they will look like, but I think I'd, I, I would love for us collectively to kind of think bigger and broader and less of a sort of top-down compliance focus. Um, and ideally, individuals and organizations making really values-based, values-driven decisions. It's again, it's kind of squishy and kind of hard to define, but if you kind of follow the thread all the way back to, you know, the things that drive behavior, you know, at the core of that is, you know, what, you know, what are people's values and what are society's values and businesses' values? Um, some of that also gets into, again, what I mentioned earlier is how we're accounting for value. So people equate, you know, X amount of monetary value is the value. And there's so much outside of that from a human impact and an environmental impact perspective that is important and that we rely on and that if those things broke down, you know, your money's worthless. So I think there really, this calls for new ways of thinking about how we value things and, and come to some, you know, agreed upon, uh, you know, sort of definitions around that, um, you know, so that way, instead of sort of forcing behavior from the top down, how do we cultivate it from the bottom up? Um, and I don't know if that manifests itself in, you know, sort of new forms of ownership or equity in organizations. Um, and again, that sort of gets to my earlier point about, you know, understanding the nature of inequality. And if we're tackling that problem, many other problems are sort of so intrinsically tied into that, that, um, that we're, you know, naturally kind of solving those problems as well. And how about you, Helen? What does the future of ethical supply change? I'm not sure I can add too much more to it than that. Um, to be honest, I think I think for me, it's the balanced approach. Um, I, I'm seeing this more, I mean, I go back to COP27. We're finally starting to see a conversation happening where we're starting to square the box, um, pull together things like climate change with just transition, with the impact it's having on people. So for me, what I'd like to see, and I'm not saying that this is like Ryan, I'm not sure this is what's going to happen, but we're starting to see an evolution where actually an organization understands the impact it's having on the supply chain. It's understanding the impact it's having on the environment that it's operating in and that it is starting to make decisions in a much more responsible way and can evidence them. Um, Most organizations now can produce a nice shiny ESG document um, that talks about how amazing they are. Um, We're having a backlash against greenwashing um, or, or, you know, and, and sort of ethical washing, if you like. So for me, the supply chain future has to be balanced and it has to be evidenced um, and can be backed up and and a way to measure impact would be amazing um, for businesses to start thinking about how they measure impact beyond just monetization um, in, into driving as, as Ryan said that value um, proposition um, would be great um, I don't think we're ever going to be in a position where we can stand up and say we've addressed everybody's human rights um, but I'd like every business to be able to stand up and say we've taken it responsibly this is the impact we've had. This is where it's worked. This is where it hasn't. And and, and be able to share that uh, in a way that I think would make a real meaningful change in the business environment. Here on The Standard Show, we have covered a huge range of topics to do with standards, the whole A to Z really, from autonomous vehicles to zinc enriched crops and lots and lots of things in between. 
With standards shaping and influencing the world around us in all sorts of ways, we're never short of stories to tell. But if there is something that we have not covered or a story that remains untold that you think we should cover in a future episode, then why not get in touch and tell us? We'd love to hear from you. Details of how to do so are in the show notes. Now, in my conversation with Ryan and Helen, we spoke about standards, and Helen had mentioned the role of BS25700, the standard she has been involved in the development of. In this third and final part of the episode, we'll hear again from Alex Troutrims about BS25700, but first from Dame Sarah Thornton, the former independent anti-slavery commissioner in the UK, and my conversation with her at the BSI Standards Conference and Awards. I started by asking Sarah about her hopes for the standard. Well, it'd be great to see lots of uh, businesses um, being accredited to this standard, but I think what's more important is that their performance has changed and as they make their business decisions, that they're informed by broader issues of human rights, but specifically uh, issues of anti-slavery, to make sure that we are not in our businesses exploiting the most vulnerable workers across the globe. And you mentioned there your previous role as anti-slavery commissioner. Tell Tell us about that role. I held the uh, role for three years, it's a statutory role, uh, and my job was to uh, encourage good practice in um, investigating and detecting modern slavery, uh, supporting victims, but also in preventing modern slavery, which is why I'm really interested in the role of business and what businesses can do to prevent it from happening in the first place. So where this this issue of anti-slavery, where do we need to look first, do you think, in order to tackle it? Well, if we're thinking about businesses in the UK, we know that some sectors are higher risk than others. So um, agriculture, food processing, um, maybe hospitality, construction, uh, contract working in terms of cleaning, that sort of thing. Very often where you've got um, uh, lower paid, lower skilled work, uh, which is often attractive to migrants um, who might be here regularly or might not. And there's a real kind of potential for um, people to be uh, forced to work. Um, They might um, have their documents taken from them. They might uh, be in debt to their employer. Uh, They might, in fact, be controlled by organised crime groups who will take virtually all their money. So I I think there's certain sectors, certainly in the UK, and that's the same internationally. We know there are certain hotspots, whether that's, uh, you know, fishers in Thailand, whether it's brick kilns in India, whether it's it's cotton in in China. We know that there are sectors and that's where businesses need to be super vigilant, not just with their tier one suppliers, but actually looking down beyond the chain. Where have these um, products been farmed or uh, dug out the ground initially? Because that's where you'll often find the most vulnerable workers who are um, all too often uh, subject to forced labor. And and in fact, Last September, two months ago, we had the new global slavery estimates, which estimated across the globe just under 28 million people in forced labour. That's an awful lot of people. So businesses really need to be super vigilant. And that's why it's great that the standard raises awareness, but also gives businesses a sense of, I don't know, a toolkit, uh, a bit of a playbook, so they know what to do to deal with it. I mean, you, the standard there you talked about there, that playbook and that, that toolkit, what other levers, though, are, are, are required, do you think, to make that real systemic change, to tackle that problem of those millions of people who are working in those sorts of conditions? So part of the response is about having 
good legislation and good regulation, which not only makes it clear that trafficking is illegal and slavery illegal in every country across the globe, but also um, that protects labour rights and workers' rights. Because these things don't happen in isolation. You very often get a steady deterioration and then it tips over into criminal activity and slavery and trafficking. So that's important. But, you know, businesses can do so much more voluntarily. Um, none of us want to buy a service or buy a product where people have been forced to work. Um, so what can business do? You know, we can't, as consumers, look down the supply chain. We rely on businesses to do that, uh, to be good, ethical uh, business people, to make sure that uh, we're not enjoying, whether it's a product or a service, which is based on the exploitation of another fellow human being. We're speaking here at the, at the Standards Conference and we heard on platform uh, one, of the, one of the keynote speakers talking about how you don't need everyone to change at the same time. You might only need sort of 25% of a particular group of people to create systemic change. I just wonder what you think where we are with the issue of modern slavery. At what point do you think will we hit that, that moment where there's a realisation and we will then suddenly get an acceleration of change? How far away are we from that? I think change is accelerating across the globe, particularly if you think about law and regulation. So in the United States, um, they will place import bans on goods that are being brought into the United States where there is a, a suspicion that there is forced labour. They're using those import bans much more. There are now 54 in operation, I know from having spoken to them this week. Um, but also in the EU, um, law proposed on mandating um, sustainability due diligence, which includes human rights due diligence, but also um, looking at forced labour bans within the EU. So the kind of the, the trend of regulation is moving uh, in the right direction. Um, but there's so much more we can all be doing voluntarily in, in the meantime. Um, and I think, you know, we might well look back in 10 or 15 years' time and say, did we really tolerate that sort of abuse um, just so we could have a, a, a buy something in the shop just a bit cheaper? And I think we might be shocked. Now, we complete part three and this episode with how we started with Alex Troutrims and a quick guide to the standard we've discussed throughout this episode, BS 25700, which provides that toolkit or playbook that Sarah mentioned to have organisations make those voluntary changes to address the issue of modern slavery. I fire some questions at Alex, starting with the obvious one and going right back to the beginning, really. What is the standard all about? So the standard BS 25700 really is all about helping organizations in um, formulating and implementing their responses to modern slavery risks that they may face. What type of standard is it? It is a guidance standard. It is a very comprehensive uh, document um, with a lot of um, expert knowledge on how organizations best deal with modern slavery. Why is it being developed? It is being developed because pretty much all organizations in the world face modern slavery. Somewhere in their organizations, in their supply chains, in their wider um, supply chain organization. So really companies have a need to address modern slavery and um, also to address SDG 8, which is to achieve decent work for all, which includes the eradication of modern slavery. What is meant by the term modern slavery? So modern slavery is a, a term that is used as an, as an umbrella term really for um, the most serious forms of exploitation, which includes uh, forced labor, uh, human trafficking and servitude. Who is the standard for? 
The standard is for practitioners, uh, both in the, in the public sector and the private sector, who want to undertake work against modern slavery and want to implement that in their organizations in a coordinated and meaningful way. How do organizations use the standard? The standard has um, really a, a management system at its core in, in which it kind of coordinates um, anti-slavery work. But then from that system onwards, it really goes into identifying what are the highest risk areas, what should be the top priorities of the organization, and then undertake activities that address those uh, priority areas. By using the standard, what benefits does it bring the organization? So the organization itself is actually then in, in, a, in a position to deal with modern slavery risks um, effectively and in a coordinated way. Um, I think at the moment we see many businesses do, you know, different types of activities in different areas, um, very often not, not particularly great coordinated. So this is really bringing this together, um, forming it into a, a management system that makes sure the organization is actually using its resources in the best way possible to uh, address modern slavery. How does it work alongside other standards? So the, the standard sits within a, a, a larger framework of, of international and domestic laws that are evolving uh, very rapidly at the moment. The standard is, is obviously not competing uh, with these other uh, legal frameworks, but it is really there to help organizations to comply with their obligations and to help them to implement anti-slavery activities in their organization. Who was involved in developing the standard? It's about, about 50 people uh, were part of the committee that developed the standards and they came from very different areas. So we had practitioners from, from businesses, from uh, the public sector, um, academic experts, NGOs and also contributors uh, with lived experience. And people also came together from from different topic angles. So we had a, a really good re uh, number of people who are uh, modern slavery experts, but also a good number of experts on risk management. So bringing these together uh, was, was really, really useful. What difference will the standard make? So we hope that this standard really helps organizations to implement effective responses to modern slavery. And we hope that organization it will help organizations to really make their uh, modern slavery responses as effective and as meaningful as possible. It, it really is a, basically a big education piece. There is a lot of knowledge in the standard, a lot of what experts see as best practices out there. And we hope that this will be helpful for people to access that knowledge and, and utilize it. So my thanks to Alex Troutrims, Dame Sarah Thornton, Helen Carter, Ryan Lynch and Fred Walter for speaking to me about the issue of modern slavery for The Standard Show. My thanks also to BSI's Cece Lee for all of her help in producing this episode. Now, to find out more about creating ethical and sustainable supply chains and organisational responses to modern slavery, including the standard BS25700, then check out the links in the show notes. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production.